Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of What's Next Live. My name is Tiffany Bova, and I have the wonderful honor and pleasure of inviting Keith Ferrazzi to the show today. First, let me say, I had never met Keith. Um, we were at an event, I don't know, maybe six or eight weeks ago, and we became instant friends. So I had the opportunity to ask him to join us, and he said yes, and here we are. So Keith, welcome to What's Next. Yeah, and I feel the same way, Tiffany. First of all, thank you very much. And I have to say, you know, I register you as one of my great finds for this year as a friend. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, means a lot. Well, if you don't know who Keith is, let me just give you a little uh, highlight. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author for Who's Got Your Back? And one of my favorites, Never Eat Alone. And his uh, newest book, Competing in the New World of Work, which you got to go out and get your copy. I've got it right here. Um, he has a 20-year history of transforming C-suite executive teams, and it's made of an agent of change and a highly sought-after advisor to some of the world's greatest companies. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today, because I think, uh, if nothing else, we have realized over the last two and a half years that the people we work with matter. Teams matter, and people matter, and connection matters. I just want to dive right in because I know Keith has got some amazing research uh, that really led him to this new book, once again, Competing in the New World of Work, but it was some principles. So Keith, maybe you can start us at the top on, on sort of what that research found and what led you to the book. Well, you know, the first thing that I would say is the, the precipitation of the book was, Tiffany, you and I both have spent many, many years preaching that the world of work wasn't really synchronized with the way that the world was functioning. I mean, you look at the way organizations are designed, the way work happens, it still looks like industrial era BS. And we needed to, to use this inflection point of the pandemic so that we didn't crawl out of the rubble and go back to work. I want us to go forward to work. And so with 2000 executives and thought leaders, we decided to use this inflection point and call the question, what does it look like? What did we learn? And what was really exciting, Tiffany, is that we became our best at the peak of the pandemic. We had, for the first time, we lifted our heads up and we had, we had our antenna out in ways that we should have all along the way. We had a great degree of a foresight and the ability to capture that kind of transforming marketplaces, technologies, competition, et cetera. Second thing is we, we lived in what I call crisis agile. We, we were sprinting every day to say, what, what have we done? Where are we struggling? What's next? That level of agility is required. I mean, who would have guessed at the peak of the pandemic that we would come out of the damn pandemic and be as volatile as we are today as a result of other externalities and other factors, I think we're going to be living in volatility. And so the question is, how do we live in radical adaptability? How does Agile become the new operating system? The next thing we learned is that we came together inclusively as, as teams in no other way. We came together vulnerably. We, we opened the aperture and said, now that we're in hybrid work, we can listen to people more broadly. We really opened the aperture of inclusion and collaboration in powerful ways if we did it right using the right tools. And then finally, where I think we stressed ourselves but knew we needed to do better is resilience. I mean, I don't think we really cracked the code on how to be more resilient, but we, but we, but we met our breaking point. And now I think 
emotional well-being, the energy of a team, these things are on the conversation table today. Well, there's there's a couple of things that, that you said there I'd love to unpack a little bit more, that kind of agility and adaptability and radical adaptability to, to use your term. I have felt going into the pandemic, you know, the conversations I always had was, it's sort of the status quo. What, what worked for us in the past is still working for us. Why change that whole conversation? Um, and, and then you had the other side of the coin where people were like, we know that success is sort of, you know, can make us yeah. feel complacent. And so we continue to invest. And so you had two sides of this same coin going in. What did you find with your clients and those you coach that went in in that status quo mindset? Yeah. What, what did they find, you know, outside of the obvious and what was their way through? You know, what was really sad is that um, there was a very narrow set of individuals who went into the pandemic looking for this as a jumping forward point. Most people, of course, and understandably with the risks that were at hand, went in hoping that we could figure out a way to get through it, survive, right? Not necessarily get better. Those who engineered the pandemic for, for trying to make it as good as it was prior to the pandemic, they ended up being mediocre. Those who ended up saying, whoa, this is an opportunity for us to reinvent, leap forward, digitize, democratize. And, and as a result of that, leaping forward, they did end up thriving. The data, unfortunately, that we found in our, in our research was that in the aggregate, <clears throat> about 85% of the people were in it for uh, the status quo, trying to make things as good as they were before. And very few people, 15%, scratched the surface of leaping forward. But what, what I do see is, a, is an opportunity as we emerge back into the workplace and we're struggling with workplace policies, two days versus three days, all those kind of things, it is starting to open up a dialogue. It's starting to open up a dialogue. It said, did we really fundamentally change anything? And so for those who went in looking for um, the ability to preserve, they, they failed. And for those who went in, very few, looking to reinvent, they, they leaped forward. Unilever did a beautiful job of doing things like just fundamentally questioning everything, like even just simple business planning and saying business planning used to be a cascading exercise from the top. What would happen now in a hybrid world, for instance, if we started crowdsourcing our growth strategies from the top 300 leaders, bottom up, right? That, that led to not only a much more inclusive environment on a global basis, but it led to breakthroughs they would have never found in a, in a, in a top-down process in terms of new product development cycle times, significantly shorter new products on the development horizon. Um, you know, it's, it, I think we've, we've had a taste and my hope is that it's not too late to get your audience excited and incited to go back and rethink some of the things that we may not have picked up along the way. Yeah, well, Unilever is a great example, but I would the the asterisks I'd put next to the Unilever for those of you who aren't familiar, what's been going on there for a bit since Paul Pullman like, sort of showed up and wanted to really redirect the company around purpose, um, is they were kind of on this journey of this sort of really kind of inclusive decision making, and those 300 leaders went through training that used to be reserved for the top, and then they sort of rolled it out more broadly. So. You know, not everyone was going into this, you know, already kind of on that purpose-led 
human-centered journey. They definitely had a leg up, no question. They had a leg up, right? And so, you know, for those that, let's say, uh, you know, we're now having these conversations, to your point, Keith, around what does this new world of work look like? You know, let's say 2023, we're kind yeah. of halfway through 2022. Um, you know, there's all this sort of tension between employee power, employer power, you know, go back to the office, don't go back to the office, hybrid work, not hybrid work. And I think for me, I feel like, uh, and, and this is my opinion, and, and because you're just so knowledgeable about teams, is I feel that's where it has the greatest risk. Like yeah. seeing that my team again, you know, in the last couple of months has been like so amazing. You, you feel reconnected, you know, and, and, you know, one of your, you know, New York Times bestselling book, Never Eat Alone. We've all been eating alone for two years. You know what I mean? So, so how do you kind of re-inject into this human environment in the new world of work? So let me give a couple of very tactical tips for those and maybe hope, hopefully a little awakening. Um, I gave a, a talk at Harvard Business School last week on this topic, so it's kind of fresh for me. Um, the first thing is fewer than 25% of companies are scratching the surface of the use of asynchronous collaboration. Almost every one of the executives listening to this um, is going to recognize that we are over-inundated and over-indexing on meetings as the mechanism for collaboration. There's a myth that I would like to, to uncloak. Meetings do not mean collaboration. Collaboration does not mean meetings. We need to begin, there's a wonderful story where a chief operating officer of Delta Airlines moved over to a unicorn company and he was met with an interesting question. He said, um, he said let's have a meeting on this thing that I, I see. And, and the team looked at him and goes, meetings? How do you, how do we have a meeting? We haven't collaborated enough yet. Now the average meeting of 12 people has four people feeling they they have left the meeting fully heard. And as a result, we end up having meetings where the wrong people, or at least not enough of the right people are in the room. People that are, don't need to be in the room are there. The problem we went into the, the, the meeting organizer went into the room, never really had a chance to stress test whether that problem was actually the right problem or are we solving the wrong problem and whether or not the solutions that we're looking at considering are bold enough. Have we really teamed out and had bolder solutions in, involved? All of that can happen and should happen before the meeting. And it should, whether you're a Google house and you're using Google docs or you're using teams or, you know, Slack course, exactly. <laughs> yep, exactly. Slack, whatever, whatever systems you're using, that's the place where we collaborate before we land on the need for a meeting. And the value of that, again, is the reduction of, of time, but more, more importantly, it gives you bolder innovations. So we've been, we've been running workshops with teams, helping them identify how to shift to asynchronous collaboration away from meeting-based collaboration. So that should, that should incite people here to begin to explore that area. I'll give you another area, which is you talked about the bonding of a team, your team. Um, you know, it was interesting. We've done a lot of longitudinal studies around team behaviors and team perception of their own social contract. The average team on a scale of zero to five is a 2.8 in terms of feeling that they have each other's backs, that they're loyal to each other, that they care about each other. A 2.8 on a scale of zero to five. Pretty good. But that's the that's pre pre pandemic language. 
And that, and, and what was interesting is how did we get that? We got that organically. We got that from the dinners, the walking down the hallway, the coffees, et cetera. Now you throw yourself into the pandemic and people have been eating alone, as you suggested, but they didn't, they didn't change and move what we used to do organically. We didn't move that into a purposeful recreation. So what happened is that stuff dissipated and it wasn't replaced with anything. Now we did a study with head, uh, Weight Watchers and Headspace and a number of companies that funded this research and said, what are people doing to retain the bondedness and connection and energy of a team in a pandemic environment, in a remote environment? Some teams were doing, and I think this is one of the highest return practices we found, a simple energy check-in once a month. If we were to go to chat right now, we could do it live here. Just everybody go to chat and put zero to five. What is your energy these days? And everybody writes in there what their energy is. And if it's a three to a five, we're, we're okay. But anybody who puts a zero, one, or a two, zero is like I'm lying down in the face, in, uh, face down in a puddle. Um, anybody who puts a zero, one, or two is signaling to the team, I'm struggling. And then the leader pauses and says, Jane, are you okay? Is there anything we can do? We have your back. Now that simple exercise on a monthly basis keeps a pulse check because sometimes you learn that, you know, somebody was up late because of their kids were teething or something, but sometimes you learn that there's a health issue in the family that they're struggling with. That empathy would have been discovered in a walk down a hallway, but the simple recreation of it as an as a monthly energy check. And now that's one tactic and tip, but, and we've been curating a number, we call them high return practices. High return practices in a hybrid world, like asynchronous collaboration, like using a what do we call a decision board in that regard, like doing an energy check-in, right? Like doing a bonding Zoom dinner where people literally just share sweet and sour what's going on in their lives. You need to purposefully recreate the world of work in a new environment. And, and, and if you don't, you'll end up struggling trying to make uh, old ways of working that have disappeared work. And, and the fact is we have to recreate new. And that's what we're spending. And that's what the book Competing in the New World of Work helps you do, which is very much what are the prescriptive practices that allow you to reboot your ways of working? Well, so, uh, you know, obviously we have Slack. Um, so we do an asynchronous week once a quarter. We've decreased just by Slack alone, decreased email, I think corporate wide, I wanna say, I think it's like 40%. And, you know, the amount of meetings is down significantly. Uh, the number of emails is down significantly. Yeah. And sort of the first four or five months of, of, uh, of the pandemic, we had increased burnout and we've seen that reduce as well, right? Because of that, of all of right. that. But we, you know, I would say we did the, let's do wine tasting, let's do team dinners, let's do coffee talk, let's do ask yeah. me anything coffee hours. And we, and, and, I, and I feel like, and I'd love your opinion is, I've heard people are a little burnt on that sort of that trying to use virtual, right? The Zoom connection in replacement of, they got a little burnt on that as well. Um, yeah. and so hybrid, really that answer of hybrid, I, I'd, I'd love to dive into the principles that you uncovered to high performing teams, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of regardless of sort of this new world of work, right? But what are those principles of high performing teams people should be most aware of? Well, and let's talk about the boredom associated with putting on these practices. Um, you know, you can certainly use a variety of tactics. You don't need to just use one consistently all the time. But um, <clears throat> what I can show you, though, as I mentioned before in the data, 
2.8 was the level of relationship. In a virtual world, the teams that implied energy check-ins, sweet and sours, et cetera, the, the, the relationship status of the team went up to a 4.6. Wow. So the data shows that you get a lift if you do the practices. Now, what I find that we're a little tired of, to some extent, we're tired of schmaltzy, like cocktail hour on Zoom. Right. Like that doesn't translate. That's not, I mean, we're not here to say, oh, you know, in a social chemical bar, cult, you know, like after our drink, that that's the same thing on Zoom. No, it's not. I'm sitting here in an office, my home by myself with a cocktail. It's a little depressing, actually. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. But, but if we go deep, so if, you know, if we said this, did this sweet and sour, and I would be able to share with people that, you know, the relationship that I formed, I, I fell in love during the pandemic. Thank goodness for swipe right. Um, so I fell in love during the pandemic and things are going really beautifully. And we're, we just, you know, bought a new home in San Francisco so we can split our time between the two because my partner's uh, in VC. Um, and, you know, and I'm struggling. I just, you know, yesterday was Father's Day and, um, you know, I've got one of my older boys. Um, I mean, I guess Sunday was Father's Day. I got one of my older boys uh, has been thrown out of a rehab center recently. And it was a real, it was a tough day for us as a family. Um, now, that kind of sharing, which during the pandemic happened accidentally because people were just at their breaking point. Right. That kind of vulnerability. But engineering that kind of vulnerability, people aren't going to get, people aren't going to get uh, bored of that because that's authentic and real. They get bored out of trying to impose some, some small talky bullshit into a medium, which doesn't lend itself to it, but real storytelling and real catching up, you know, that's people aren't going to fatigue of that. Yeah. And I would agree. Uh, and I love the sweet and sour, right? That just with your little share there, Keith, right? You had a sweet, you had a sour, very simple. I saw something uh, a few weeks ago where actually that's not true. It was at a, it was at an executive dinner I did in Toronto a few weeks back. And we were having an executive dinner and we were sort of sharing going through, we weren't calling it sweet and sour, but it was sort of the yeah. sharing of, you know, how, how have things changed? And this gentleman said, you know, my daughter used to come, you know, and sit on my lap at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of screaming and crying. And people would be like, oh, you know, isn't she cute? Like, what's her name? What's she doing? And it would be the story of she just lost her tooth or whatever. He goes fast forward 18 months now. And, and people almost have no tolerance for it. Like she'll come in still and they're kind of like, you know, okay, yeah, let's get back to the meeting, <laughs> you know? And, and, and I was like, oh, it was the first time I'd heard that sort of, okay, people felt like, you know, we've moved past that. And, and I hope we don't move past the empathy that I hope we don't move past, but. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're, this is where radical adaptability. We know that we're moving past lots of things we need to be constantly evolving one our commitment to your audience is you know follow us and we are always going to help you stay five years forward that's my commitment pretty straightforward what's five years forward look like in fact one of the things we're working on right now and i think we're talking and working with slack as well on this is what is a world-class hybrid company five years from now or what is a you know and, and what we're seeing is because only 15 percent of large organizations are effectively world-class hybrid today. 
you know, more so it's the unicorns, take digital native founders, that sort of thing. Um, I'm highly advocating the CHRO and the CIO partnership to get off the stick and stop talking about whether we should be in the office two or three days. I don't care. It really doesn't matter. Let's talk about what I call the collaborative stack. How do we do asynchronous work? Because we've always been hybrid and we're always going to be hybrid. And how do we do reduce the number of meetings? How do we do asynchronous work? How do we use remote meetings for the most inclusive, broader outlook? But then how do we use personal meetings? The real sin to me is seeing all of these personal meetings get scheduled and they look exactly like they did or what we did in Zoom. Right. And that is unacceptable because the, the, the reemergence into a physical environment demands that you respect the fact that you need to earn the commute. You're, tell, you're making people schlep from their home in Los Angeles, downtown or wherever it is, then damn it, you better reward them with something special. And that's where the emotional connection comes in or the more gritty, difficult. I always say that if you're doing a physical meeting, make sure that you're indexing every part of the agenda to be something on the emotional spectrum. Well, I mean, give people a reason to want to go to the office. Don't tell them, give them a reason to you know, want to go to the office. Listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot a little bit because to your over your left shoulder is uh, Never Eat Alone, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, it was a phenomenon. You know, people talked about it. People still talk about it. Uh, I, I'd love to just hear from you. I mean, you know, I think firsthand, for those of you who have not read the book, pick that one up right after you pick up competing in the new world of work. Um, but pick that one up because I think it's illuminating. And if, and if you could maybe share uh, what sort of the best that people got out of it that was maybe most surprising to you. You know, it's been some time since, how many years has it been since the book published? 2005. Yeah, so it's been a minute, right? 17 years almost. Um, so, you know, what what uh, what was the most surprising to you that they got out of it? When people see you and they're like, oh my God, Keith, I love that book. This is what it did for me. What, what are those ones that really stuck, stick out? Well, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is when an introvert says to me, you made networking not some thing that I am alien to, but you just made me realize that real networking was about being purposeful and process oriented around deepening real relationships in my life. That was one. And then the second is to shift networking from what do I get out of you to how can I be of service? Right. And when you shift to generosity as the currency for a great network, it's freeing and it's more effective. Um, it's not about past, you know, walking around a bar, passing out a business card and with a martini glass. Um, it really is about steeping in to a real human and understanding how to be of service and then co-creating things together, right? That's the power of a network. Um, and that, I think, was the big awakening for folks. Now, what was interesting is because I put them right together. Uh, one book that came out right at the peak of the pandemic, the other work was being researched, which is Leading Without Authority. We wake up 20 years from when Never Alone came out. We wake up today, and we're in a world where we work in networks. So the same philosophy of productivity is actually needs to be applied inside of businesses. Leading without authority is how do you lead in a network where you don't have the authority over these people, where in reality, you're inviting them in 
to co-create. You're inviting people in and you're reach, reaching out with generosity and service, which is how do you get real transformation done? So it's interesting because, you know, that's a 20 year gap between those two books, but one is applied to each of our own networks and our own opportunity creation. And the other one is applied to leadership today, which is how do we, how do we lead in networks? Well, you know, and I, and I would say Keith lives everything he just described in Never Eat Alone. So as I mentioned at the top of this interview that we met at an event, uh, it was at Peter Diamandis's Abundance 360 in, in uh, Beverly Hills about six or eight weeks ago. Um, as I said, we had never met. Tiffany And Tiffany rocked it there as if anybody would be surprised. I, I was fortunate enough to, to have, a, have a good session. And I sort of walked up to him and said, hey, hey, you know, like maybe we can grab lunch tomorrow. I didn't really know anybody else there, right? Never eat alone. He said, absolutely, like, come find me. We'll go grab a coffee. We went, grab a coffee. He opened up his book and it was all of in service. How can I help you? What can I do? Get, let me get to know you better. And when I was explaining things I was doing, he was very quickly going, oh, yep, I know here. I can help you here. I can help you there. Like it was a manifestation of everything uh, he just said. And it was that's why I said it's it's one of those experiences where when you are able to show up like that for people, it can be really changing for introverts, for extroverts, just for uh, for people, just you know, being uh, more open and kind uh, and 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 be much more of that sort of servant leader. So I just wanted to say thank you, Keith. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, you know, spending time. And for all of you that really loved listening to what Keith had to say. Um, he's got a website called hybridteamswin.com where you can go grab all the research, um, pick up any or all of his books, um, you know, watch his TED Talks. If you get a chance to see him present live, do that as well. But Keith, any parting words you'd like to leave uh, our guests today on the What's Next Live? No, I mean, I, I think the most important thing is we're in a new normal that has actually been present for decades. It's just so volatile today that we can't ignore it. And so the intention is to have given you a roadmap in competing in the new world of work for you to be the evangelist, the acolyte inside of your companies. I wanted to give you the tools. I wanted to give you the tactics to be a change agent and not crawl out and go back to anything, but to go forward. And Tiffany, thanks so much for the opportunity to do it with this wonderful audience today. Well, again, thank you, Keith. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you spending time with us today. We all can make more money, can't make more time. So I appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you again for tuning in to What's Next Live with Keith Ferrazzi. Have a great rest of your day.